Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and minks everywhere saying, hey, you don't want me, I'm just another kind of weasel. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, you know what that means. Live from the Michigan State University campus and live from Chow Chilla, California, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBB, international superstar and Walter's favorite diva of SLA. <laughs> and speaking of weasels, here are two people who know here are two people who know how to ferret out just about anything you're hiding. My co-hosts Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hello you little ferreters. <laughs> hello everybody. I'm not sure I like being called a weasel. Well, I didn't call you weasel. I said you could ferret things out. That's a good thing. That's like that means you got a good nose for finding things out. All right. I'm See? a sleuth. I like that. Because ferrets, ferrets and weasels and minks are all related, you know. They're all good animals. Hmm. Do you know they kill little rodents? Yeah. They kill mice and things like that. So they're actually good. You keep one as a pet, you wouldn't have any mice. You don't need a cat. You just need a ferret or a weasel or a mink. There I don't you go. have mice to begin with. Okay, I have to ask you two one question before we start. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm looking at the two of you. Where's my present? For Where's what? my present? P-R-E-Z-E-N-T. Where's my present? For what? It's our anniversary. It's mid-October. It's our anniversary it for the is? show. Remember, we launched October 15th. Huh. In what year? What year? Like 2015. Three years ago. Three 2015, years ago. yeah. So it's our anniversary now. We missed it by a couple of days, but, you know, we can't have a show on it. But anyway, so I was looking at you guys wondering where my present I got you guys a present. This is your present right here. Can you see it? Oh, oh thank you. She's showing me a bottle of water, everybody. Thank you very we'll much. We'll have it when that. you're actually here in exactly. person. Okay, well, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. We're working on it. But anyway, so it's our anniversary. So applause for everybody out there in the listening audience. Thank you for keeping us on the show. Thank you for listening. We love you all very much. Hope you love us as much as we love you. Uh, today, our topic is about the nature of language and specifically what happens when we treat language as subject matter. But before we get into that, um, I want to tell you a little anecdote. It's kind of related, actually. Uh, to it, this happened. It's related to the topic, so I'm not off topic here. Um, I went to a homeowners association meeting last night and met this really interesting guy. I'm going to call him Jim to keep him anonymous. Big tall guy, because you know everybody's tall to me. So a big tall guy <laughs> who was running for board, right? And so we we're just chit-chatting. And then he found out what I did, and I found out he was a US history teacher, he teaches high school. And so when he found out what I did, he goes, Oh yeah. He goes, I have to tell you, he goes, I didn't learn any language when I was in high school. He took Chinese, believe it or not. Hmm. And he said, and so finally I just went to China and I learned. Chinese when I was in China. <laughs> so I asked him, I started asking him about that and his thoughts on this. And he said, I probably wasn't a very good language learner in high school. I said, oh, I think you were a fine language learner. Did you ever stop to think that maybe your teachers were using an outmoded kind of methodology or curriculum? He goes, yeah, now that I have experience being a high school teacher, he goes, I think that's probably true too. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting little, you know, run into somebody at a homeowners meeting who, mm-hmm. who can tell you about their learning of Chinese. At those people. Yeah, it's cool. So yeah, it's related to our topic today too. What happens when you treat language as subject matter? Um, and I'm going to do a clarification question you know, uh, right away because I got a really interesting email from Lance. It didn't go to he was BBP. He Lance often writes to me directly, as some people do. And his question was about reading. Okay, let me read the question as he wrote it to me because it's it's not quite on topic, but it's related to language teaching. He says, "Hi, Bill et al. Even though he wrote to me." Um, it's been suggested that reading is not communication because Lee's definition in the book you've recommended refers to communication occurring between two or more 
people. And he's talking about Jim's book on tasks and language in classrooms. And he says, partial and full communication aside, I thought we established that reading as a form of communication. Do you agree? Well, Lance, of course I agree. In fact, I talk about this in chapter one of my book. Reading is a communicative act. Um, and if you look at that definition you just cited, that even Jim's definition, reading fits in, is communication occurring between two or more people. Remember, our definition of communication is the expression, interpretation, and sometimes, but not always, but sometimes negotiation meaning in a given context with a purpose. Well, guess what? A writer is their expressor of meaning, and a reader is an interpretive meaning, and there's a context for reading and a purpose for reading. Um, so reading um, is a communicative act. I think people have got to understand that communication's definition does not mean two people talking, or anyone talking for that matter, because um, expression of meaning can happen without talking. So um, let's keep that in mind, gang. So reading, those of you who are into reading and storytelling and using reading in class and text in class, um, that's a good thing. And it is part of communication. Um, don't let people tell you that communication is just when students talk or you talk with students. That's, 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 a, that's a reduced and very narrow definition of communication. Okay, I'm going to change my papers here in a second. You're going to hear some rustling. I got a new system for holding my papers up, you guys. Ah, nice. Does it work? Yeah, I got, got this little thing that holds them up right in front cool. of me, but then it's so close to the microphone that sometimes it's hard to, to move them around without rustling. Anyway, so that that was a good question from Lance. Wasn't that a good question? Yeah. Lance good always question. has good questions. Yeah, he does. Um, and uh, let's see, what else? Um, oh, yeah. Um, we are going to I will remind everybody uh, the format of our show because sometimes people are new listeners. Um, we have a SLA challenge question. I'm going to give that question in just a few minutes. And the first person to get a call in with the correct answer wins the prize, right? And what do we always tell people, Walter and Gallica, to keep their cell phones close by. Uh, we don't want you running to find, find it and break a leg on your way or trip over the dog or trip over a rug, which I have done. That's why I had the scar on my forehead. Did you know that, Angelica? I did not know I've that. I tripped on a rug huh. and landed on the dining room table. Oh, man. Yeah, wow. it was an emergency How many for stitches? four hours. Wow. I don't know. They put like 10 stitches in or something like that. Hmm. And uh, my house used to see my condo after that happened. It looked like OJ had <laughs> visited me or something. There was blood everywhere. It was terrible. Anyway, so keep your cell phones close by so you can answer that SLA challenge question. Same for the diva challenge question. We always have two questions in our show, one SLA related, one diva related. I'll read the diva question at some point, and you'll have time to pick up, punch in our number, and tell Dustin, our phone handler, hey, I'm going to answer the diva question for Bill. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, 517-884-4321. Again, Dustin is on the phones waiting for you to call. He's such a nice guy. You guys need to call and say hi to him. So call Dustin and tell me you want to talk to us. He's looking really Un sad. I know, right? He's like that Maytag repair guy in those old commercials, like waiting for someone to call. So Angelica will be looking at Mixler, <clears throat> and she knows who's lurking there. So if you don't call, we're going to put your names on Santa's bad boy and bad girl list because <laughs> you need to call in. Um, and we want you to talk to us. So, again, what's the phone number, Angelica? Walter, what's our phone number? 517-884-4321. Four, Oh, you two do that so well. Have you ever thought of doing a duet together? We should. You need to do a duet what together. What should we sing? I, I don't know. You have to pick something that where there is a male and female. Actually, you can do two male voices, two female voices. It doesn't make any difference. 
We'll oh, I could that. see you guys doing that song, the Maroon 5 song that they did with Christina Aguilera. Um, moves like Jagger. Oh, yeah. Sure, we'll That'd do that good. one. <laughs> I can see you guys doing that one. We could do that, uh, you know, was it in the 90s, The Boys to Men and Mariah Carey? What was oh, that song? yeah. Um, oh, what was it? So famous know. you forgot the name, right? I can't remember the so. name of it. I've sung it before. Yeah. I probably have myself, too. but I just can't think of the name. One well, we're going to work up a number One sweet day, soon. that's exactly it. When, 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 when I'm in East Lansing in two weeks, we're going to rehearse, and then we're going to do a number live on the air, I guarantee you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you yeah, are pr- promising big here to our listeners. I'm not sure that we're oh, going yeah. to Oh, yeah. We will it. deliver. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question up right away so that people can hear it and call in with it. So here's the SLA challenge question. To demonstrate, because, you know, we're on chapter two this week of my book. Remember, we're doing the countdown to ACTFL right now. So every week it's, a, it's some theme coming out of one of the chapters of my book. So this week it's chapter two. So to, dem- to demonstrate the underlying abstract and implicit nature of language, in chapter two of my book, what's it called, Walter? The what? chapter of the book. Yeah. The, the book. Uh, while Uh-oh. we're on, on the, the topic, topic BVP yes, on well, language, acquisition, and... Something. Classroom practice. There you go. Classroom practice. There you go. So so in chapter two of my book, while we're on the topic, I discuss the nature of the subject of a sentence. I show how typical textbook and teacher definitions of subject are inaccurate. What is the technical definition of subject I offer in chapter two? So if you've got the book, you can look at it real quick. Okay. So again, to demonstrate the underlying abstract, very abstract, and implicit nature of language. In chapter two of my book, I discuss the nature of subject of a sentence. I show how typical textbook and teacher definitions of subject are just inaccurate. What is the technical definition of subject I offer in chapter two? You can read it right off the page if you call in with the answer. So do that. Look it up if you've got the book. All right. I guess if, guess if question, you have right? the book, you, you don't have a need to win it. So, you know, I mean. Yeah, but that's okay. They can win a Gotta copy and it put it in someone's stocking for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, Kwanzaa or whatever people celebrate. So, all right. Shall I get into the topic? Yes, please. I'm going to get into the topic. The Are you ready for topic. the topic? What's the topic? Tell, today, me you want, tell, me, tell me you want the topic. Tell me you want we the want topic. We want the topic. We want the topic now. How badly do you want the topic, Alan Gallagher? Totally. While we're on the topic. All right. 8%. Okay. Here we go. Today's topic is about the nature of language. Specifically, what happens when we treat language as subject matter? Now, we've talked about uh, language as subject matter on a couple of occasions in this show, but mostly focusing on what language really is, um, being an abstract, complex, and implicit mental representation, hence the SLA challenge question today, right? So language is abstract, complex, and implicit, and it bears no resemblance to what we find in textbooks. So we're not going to revisit that today. That's kind of old hat, even though it's an SLA challenge question. So instead, we want to talk about the consequences of treating language like subject matter, some of which I hinted a little bit about in my chapter, but I thought we could extrapolate on here. But to do that, let's first distinguish uh, language as subject matter from language as part of communicative ability, right? So language as subject matter means to treat language like you would treat history, science, math, and English. In other words, what we typically do in content courses is we teach something or interact with students while we teach it. We have students practice or somehow demonstrate their knowledge of that subject matter. And then we test it or we assess their knowledge uh, of that subject matter. 
Um, and that's what we wind up doing with language as subject matter. We teach it, we make students practice it, and then we test what they practice, and voila, we give them a grade. Now, language as part of a communicative ability refers to the development of underlying representation that is tapped for use in communicative events. So in other words, we're talking about language acquisition, which is quite different from when we treat language as subject matter. So let's just ask real quick, before we talk about the consequences of treating language as subject matter, I want to make sure everybody understands where this came from. Because, and Eric has written about this recently in his blog, one of his blogs that he does, or his acquisition memo, Eric Herman. If you're not a member of that, you should go and, and sign up. He's got some really good stuff there uh, for teachers about L2, uh, L2 acquisition and L2 teaching. So where does language as subject matter come from? Um, language as subject matter is deeply, deeply rooted in institutionalized education is traceable back to the founding in universities. Walter, do you know when universities were first came about, when they were actually starting to be founded? A long time ago. Yes, that's a good answer, Walter. How long ago? Medieval times. So universities started to perk up in the medi medieval uh, era of Europe. I can't speak about the Far East or, in, or, or other parts of the world, but I'm talking about European tradition. So we're talking about a middle-aged, middle, not middle-aged, but <laughs> middle-aged or medieval institutions. <laughs> I'm, middle, I'm beyond middle-aged. My God, see, I just can't remember anything. Um, and so language as subject matter is rooted in the traditions of Latin and Greek as they were taught in medieval times. Now, um, you... Um, what was what would happen in these kinds of courses is Latin and Greek were taught as um, knowledge that you can then apply to read texts, right? So the goal was to read texts. Um, and in these courses, what you would do is traditionally you would memorize cases, you would memorize declensions, you would practice rules, you would translate back and forth between one language and another and so on. And when national languages like Spanish, French, and German arose, because don't forget those languages weren't around in the Roman Empire. These, these are late languages. They, they started to rise around the 1,000, 900, 1,000, 1,100, depending on, on what part of Europe you're talking about. So when the national languages like Spanish, French, German, and Italian arose late in the Middle Ages uh, and during the Renaissance era, education these languages did what? Well, they adopted the Latin and Greek format because what else do you do? You already have one format for teaching one language. Why not just apply it to the others? Uh, and this is the model that underlies almost all educational contexts today and is explicitly or implicitly encoded uh, in, in publications uh, and in, in talking about languages by universities, university administrators, schools of education, language departments, and so on. Um, it's, it's ubiquitous to how we think about language. Language is just another subject matter. So what are the consequences of treating language like any other subject matter? And as you know, I don't think it's like any other subject matter. Um, but what are some of the consequences? I've listed five, and that doesn't mean that they're the only ones. So I'm hoping people will call in and let us know what they think. So here's the first one I thought about. The most obvious consequence is the perpetuation of myths about language learning. So people who go into language as subject matter classes think that you actually learn languages by teaching, practicing, and then testing, that somehow that's how you learn languages. Um, that's how you learn about languages, but that's not how language acquisition happens. A second consequence is the misdirecting of learner orientation. So what happens in language as subject matter is learners don't look at proficiency as outcome. They don't look at, hey, look what I can do with language. They look at, what's my grade on the quiz? What's my grade in the course? Will this absence count against me? And all those kinds of things that matter in all their other courses, 
a subject matter because students are focused on grades and their parents are focused on grades. I want my student to get a 3.98 or a 40 so he or she can get in the best school in the world or university, right? So one of the second, one of those uh, consequences is this one about misdirecting students' orientation, not toward proficiency and ability, but toward getting a grade. A third consequence is that it's not clear we deliver on the goods. We know that language acquisition, if our goal is proficiency and ability, doesn't happen through teaching languages, traditional subject matter. It happens other ways. Uh, and so we, we may claim we're doing something when we're not doing it, and then we don't deliver on the goods, and that undermines our own credibility as some kind of educational institution. Not institution as university, but language profession, for example. Uh, the fourth uh, consequence, I think, is the perpetuation of what I perceive to be very expensive materials development industry. I'm talking about commercial materials here, so textbooks and things like that. These are very expensive things um, that are driven by language as subject matter. And so you get very, very large corporations um, that have a, a social science division, they have a science division, they have a world languages division, they have a humanities division. And the entire model for all of that corporation is publishing the same kind of textbooks. It's only one kind of model, right? It has, it's a textbook, it has these kind of ancillaries and things like that. And that's all predicated on the idea of language as subject matter. Um, but when we stop treating language as subject matter, we start questioning the role of these kinds of textbooks. They may not really uh, be useful for us. We might need to be doing something else. And finally, the fifth consequence of treating language as subject matter is uh, and I'm going to credit Grant for this, Grant Boulanger for this, um, not because he told me this, because I was reflecting on this, because um, I know he's concerned about this, but treating language as subject matter perpetuates inequality in education. In other words, it perpetuates the idea that someone's an A student and someone's a D student or a C student. It perpetuates the myth that certain kinds of students should learn Spanish and certain kinds of students should learn German or Russian. It perpetuates the myth that X is hard and Y is easy. And we can give aptitude tests to put students in particular categories. Language acquisition is blind to those kinds of things. Language acquisition is for everybody, right? But treating language as subject matter, then we start to do things that we do in other subject matter, which is identify people as weak, strong, good, bad, aptitude, not aptitude, and so on. So I think that treating language as subject matter perpetuates some of these ideas about inequality in education that, that we really need to work at if we want to move our profession forward. Now, there may be other consequences, those are the ones that I thought of. Um, so I'd like to hear from you out there in the audience what you think are some of the consequences. If you'd like to elaborate on some of these or challenge me or, or bring up related matters, please call in. We'd like to hear from you. I'd also like to hear about the political and social consequences. When we start talking about this stuff, we're getting into some great territory here because on the one hand, I'll be blunt, there are particular people in the government I don't want to have hear, mishear, and misinterpret when we say language is not like typical subject matter. That doesn't mean we can't have languages in classes. Of course we can. What it means is we need a new kind of pedagogy that's appropriate for languages and new ways of assessing acquisition. Um, we don't want people to think that languages can't be taught and shouldn't taught. Of course, of course we can have languages in classes. We just want our own way of doing things. All right, so let's be careful about how we talk about things. So the, the um, phones are open, Mixler is open. We wanna hear from you all. 
And we already have a caller on the line, it looks like. I'm seeing on my screen here, we have Darren. Darren, are you on the line? Uh, hey, Bill. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Darren. Hey, Darren. How's it going? Hey, all right. You know, first time caller, long time <laughs> listener. <laughs> Whatever. All, all right. right. <laughs> and where are you calling oh. from, Darren? Uh, I'm calling from, uh, you know, Michigan, somewhere. Michigan. Metro Detroit area. Metro Detroit. Hey, go Detroit. Go Motown. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love, I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s. I admit my age. I loved the 60s and the music. I loved Motown, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye. I loved all of that stuff. I thought, I oh, thought yeah, the stuff from Detroit was the best music in the world. Anyway, so, okay, uh, looks like you're calling about the SLA question. Is that what you're calling about, Darren? Um, I'm not, actually. I was just going to, like, kind of elaborate on, you know, one of the consequences of, um, you know, our topic oh, okay. about uh, teaching it as subject matter. Sorry, I was talking okay. to your muscle man for a minute, so I don't know if you covered this or not. But, um, okay. no, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like, I mean, to me, I think it seems like, you know, the whole CI movement, you know, I think is growing, you know, due to, like, Facebook groups out there and things, and more so than it has been in years past, I think. And, you know, I think one of the consequences because you just talked about like you know students and you know they want the grade and they're um conditioned into how they're you know their rote memorization and doing anything in subject matter and languages they figure that they walk in doing the same thing but i think the consequences of the teachers i think sometimes i don't know frustration and kind of like helplessness a little bit you know because i don't know sometimes it feels defeating that you know, the students come from a legacy teacher, you know, and, you know, they're used to studying and rote memorization, and usually, you know, they demonstrate what they know rather than what they can do, you know. So and then I think, you know, the teacher has to get their kids to, you know, buy into, you know, us using CI in the classroom and try to get them, you know, up to speed, you know, if you're inheriting them for like a level two class. And, you know, so it's kind of like a lot of times it seems like there's a lot working against teachers who are trying to, you know, they have CI driving their instruction, you know, and, um, but, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't know, I just have to kind of get them to, to buy into it and to start, you know, ch you know, changing your expectations as a teacher or, you know, having them know what you expect as a teacher in class. And, you know, that's been kind of, uh, and I've had some success with it this year, but, you know, I've had, I'm getting to, you know, students from five or six different level one Spanish teachers, you know, and uh, they come to me and I'm starting to tell them stories and doing, you know, doing PQA personalized questions and input. And I can just tell like when they were with me for the first month and I was giving them like time rights to do, you know, I'm thinking they're probably like, whoa, who's this guy? You know, we've never done this stuff before, right. <laughs> you know. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, it's just of a, of a battle. And I guess, um, but I mean, it's it's working out. It's, it's you know, playing let, let, catch up. Let, let, me, let me elaborate on something or spin off on something you said, Darren, um, about from the teacher point of view. A, a lot of teachers in typical subject matters always talk about discipline and student engagement and so on and things like that. And I think that is one of the consequences we don't talk about too, uh, because what I'm getting at is teacher burnout here in a minute. But right. we don't talk about the fact that treating language as regular subject matter just invites student boredom and students treating you like they would treat any of the class. When you visit classes that are interactive and input-oriented and communication-based, the dynamics are much different. I remember a, a teacher who told me, she and I did some workshops together about the time she moved to a new school. And there was a group of kids who were behavioral, 
they were, they were deemed to be behavioral problems and they were having difficulty in their language, their Spanish class, right? And guess, of course, they were all of color, these kids. And the, print, the, the administrator was beside himself what to do with them. And she goes, I'll take them. And so back in the days of the natural right. approach, which is, you know, and so I may have told the story before in the air, but anyway, so she took them over and everything literally disappeared within weeks. All the behavior problems disappeared. And these kids started going, hey, I can speak Spanish now. Right. And she had them in a, and at the end of the year, she tested them and they were superior to the other kids in comparable classes in terms of their ability with Spanish, their knowledge of Spanish. And so, so I think that, that another consequence of treating language as subject matter is, um, is uh, turning students off and having behavior problems. And also, also teacher burnout because teachers give up after a while. If they can't get, if students don't want to be intellectualized about language, um, then they're going to, you know, they're going to fight you and, and you, you burn out. Whereas you can have a much more exciting career and exciting classrooms if you allow communication and, and input and interaction with input to be the center of what you do. So right. anyway, so that, well, what you just said made me think of that. So. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes, you know, if, if they move on to a legacy teacher, then it's kind of like sometimes defeating because then you know, all the, you know, all the time you put into it, you know, so which kind of, I guess I have two questions. I don't know if you want to, you know, answer one or two of them, but based why don't you on shoot this, me like, one? You... We, got another, we got another call on the line. So why don't you shoot me one and then okay. we'll have time for the second um, one later. Okay. On. The best one, I guess then is, uh, Oh, well, one's about how to get people on board in your department, but we can help. All right. How about what do you think is going on in like a methods class at college? So like if there's no discussion on how to do task based activities, talking about acquisition, movie talks, stories, TPRS stuff, then what do we think is going on in, you know, the whole semester in a methods class in college? Um, it depends on where you are. It depends on where you are, Darren, sure. but I agree with you. I, I, we've talked about this. and th- In fact, right before we started the show, we talked about probably doing another show on what's needed in teacher education. So I might, I might just leave the bulk of what I want to say for that show, which will come sometime after okay. April, I think. Um, but I'll just say the following, that we need to rethink language teacher education courses, who does them and how they're done. And so, um, so uh, that's a good question. And so rather than answer it now, I'm going to just say that to yeah. tease people and say, that I'm going to make that a topic for a show for the, uh, probably the first week of December, probably, um, after ACTFL's over and after Thanksgiving. So, um, yeah. So thank oh, you for that. Well, sweet. Thank you for reminding um, me that we're going to do Do my name, does my name go in a hat? Yes, your name goes in a hat. <laughs> yes, oh, I forgot to tell everybody. Yeah, sweet. we're doing a book. We're doing the book drawing. So, yes. So, you called and your name goes in a hat. Anybody who calls in today, their name goes in a hat for a drawing for my book. Awesome. So there you go. All right. All right, Darren. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye, Darren. Bye, Darren. Bye. Yeah. I didn't think about that in my list when I was formulating my list for today's show about the consequences of treating language as regular subject matter as opposed to special. That's what I think we need to do is we need to say language is special subject matter or language is unique subject matter. Um, and start thinking about it that way so we can communicate to people that we have a unique and a, and a desired pedagogy that may not look like other classes and we're going to need different kinds of assessments that may not look like other classes. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, the student problem and the teacher burnout is a real issue. We use, we, we're going to have a huge shortage of language teachers in the near future. We already have one now, but it's going to be even bigger and part of it's due to burnout. Okay, we have another call on the line. We have Bill on the line. Hey, Bill, are you there? I am. Hey, Bill, I always like talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch for that. 
<laughs> Bill, where are you calling from? Indiana. Indiana. All right. All right. I, think, yeah. I know this bill. This is my Tokayo bill. You sure do. Tokayo means uh, someone who shares the same name as you. Um, and you're too young, Bill, to know all the great songs from the 60s that have the word Bill in them. There were a lot of them. Like, don't mess with Bill. I know, no, no, no. Know that song? I don't. Your parents <laughs> do, I'm sure you do. All right. What they okay, haven't told you is that you that's, so that song well, they named you after that song, you know, so. There you go, probably. <laughs> All right, Bill, what are you calling about? What's up? To answer the SLA question. Oh, well, great. Okay, let me read it again to our audience, and then you can answer the question. So here goes this SLA challenge question one last time. To demonstrate the underlying abstract and implicit nature of language, in chapter two of my book, I discuss the nature of the subject of a sentence. I show how typical textbook and teacher definitions of subject are inaccurate. What is the technical definition of subject I offer in chapter two? Bill, take it away. What's the answer? The subject of a sentence is that nominal, is that nominal which occupies the specifier position in the tense phrase. Ding, 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 ding. There you go. Most and everybody out there excellent. scratching their heads going, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Walter. Yeah, because a lot of people like to define subject as the doer or the sentence. And then, of course, you get to a verb like seem. If I say Angelica seems happy today, I can't say Angelica is a seamer. She's not doing anything. Like she's a talking, she's talking and she's a talker. She's doing. But when she seems happy, I can't say she's a seamer. So a lot of, a lot of our definitions of what subjects are just do not work. And they don't work universally. A lot of people like to say, well, subject is what agrees with the verb, or the verb agrees with the subject. And that's great in Spanish, but it doesn't work in Chinese where there are no verb forms, right? So the only definition that works universally, which linguists work with, is subject is the nominal occupying the specifier position of the tense phrase. So read my book. Read more about it. Thank you, Bill, for that. Um, and you have won a prize, which will wing its way out to you soon, and your name goes in the hat for a copy of my book. Yay, that Bill. Fantastic. Great. Anything else on your mind before we let you go? Um, I don't think so today. All right. Well, if something does, call us back. We're here for you. Thanks for calling in, Bill. All right. Bye, Bill. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye, Bye Bill. Hey. That was good. Yeah, that's uh, um, people don't realize how abstract language is. And I could break that definition down for people, but I think I'll let it percolate. Maybe we'll have a whole we'll have a whole show on what's the subject of a sentence. All right. I'm gonna go ahead and give the Diva challenge question now since Bill successfully answered the SLA challenge question. And then whoever calls in with the correct answer to the Diva challenge question will also win a prize. So here goes. You ready for this? Ready. Bring it on. Which which pop diva recorded an album in Spanish? See how I'm trying to make these language related now? Mm -hmm. Which pop diva recorded an album in Spanish called Mi Reflejo, even though she did not speak Spanish fluently at the time and probably or maybe still does not? So which pop diva recorded an album in Spanish called Mi Reflejo, even though she did not speak fluent Spanish at the time, and maybe or probably still does not. Give you a hint, she's half Latino. There you go. Okay, so call them with the answer to that question and win a prize. All right. So uh, let's see here. It looks like we got another caller on the phone yeah. already. Um, let's see. We have Meg calling. Meg, are you on the phone? Yes. Hello. And my class wants to say? 
Oh. Is that French? Did I just hear bonjour? Did I just hear bonjour? bonjour. Did I just hear bonjour from your students? Pardon? Be Meg, did I just hear bonjour from your students? Yes, yes. I'm with my ninth period class of eighth graders. Ah bon, c'est une classe de français. Très bien. That's awesome. Good, good. good. All right, so, so Meg, what I do you call... I have a question about the topic. Um, Say that again. Language. So my question is about um, about language not... Well, being taught or not being taught like subject matter. I regular subject that, matter. Right, because we can't, it can't be taught like a regular subject matter because we learn... We acquire it... Uh, it no, because it's subconscious. I remember you had said one of your goals for first-year classes um, at the University of Michigan is realizing that they're learning. And I find that that's a problem I frequently encounter with, like, teaching with comprehensible input. Sometimes I, students are saying, we're not learning. So I wanted to know how you reach that goal with your students. How we reach what to get them to realize that they are learning? Yes, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but um... right. Well, we have we have can do statements which show them when, that periodically throughout the semester. If you can do this, this is demonstrate you're learning something. Could you do it before? No, I couldn't. Can you do it now? Yes, I can. Therefore, you've learned something, right? So um, can't or you can do something. I don't learning is probably not the right way, but you can do something you couldn't do before. Um, so we have our can do statements, and that's one way we show things. And then instructors will often engage. Um, in, in the first year program, it's not too difficult because we get them fresh. It's in the second year, particularly the third semester, we have a little trouble with this because we get a lot of students coming in with different expectations because they don't come in from our first year, all of them. Mm -hmm. and they want to know where our worksheets are, where our fill in the blank is and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, we don't do that, you know. And they go, oh, I haven't learned anything. And so people like Walter or people like Dan will sit them down and go, well, let me go through some things and ask, could you do this before you start this class? No. Could you do that before you start this class? Mm -hmm. No. You go through a list and then and they go, well, maybe I did learn something. I just didn't know I was learning it. So we have to, I think the best benchmarks for telling people what they know is making them do some can-do things and then and recording it and showing them like this is something you couldn't do before. Now you can do it. So um, I think I think that's the best way to go right now. There are probably other ways. I'll wait for other people to to um, call in with some ideas or send us ideas, but that's the one we're working with at MSU right now. Okay. Yeah, so just you a clarification, a Meg. We work mm -hmm. at Michigan State University, I'm not sorry, the sorry. University of Michigan. Michigan State, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I have a, do you have an example of a can-do statement that relates to comprehension? Not to comprehension, no, because one of the reasons is because our students are really focused on being able to be expressive with language. So even though we so teach output. through, we, yeah, we teach through a lot of input, the things we do are um, very basic can-do statements with output. So things we know that they can, should be able to do if they've been interacting with us in classrooms. So like, you know, one of the can-do statements, one of the early ones on is like, I can say when I get up, when I go to bed and three things I do every day. Something like that. Okay. And after a month of interacting, a month and a half interacting with us, they should be able to do that. Now, um, Axel so does have interpretive can-do statements that you can they find. Do. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can see that they have some available that would that they might be able to. Uh, you know, you'd be able to get an example of that there. Right. And we used to actually okay. we used to have we used to have the interpretation side of those things too, but Walter and I dropped them for simplicity's sake, and we just do the output ones now. But we used to have both flip sides of the coin that you could both interpret something and express something on that same thing. Um, but okay. we simplified. 
for purposes, because otherwise you're spending all your time doing can-dos and assessing when, you know, you really want to spend time interacting, so. Right. Okay, neat. Well, that definitely gives me some ideas for how to well, good. kind of scaffold okay, can-do statements where it's not a ton of output, but like answering a question in the target language or something about okay. what you do on the weekend, et cetera. Sounds good. Sounds good, Megan. Thanks for calling in. Say hi to your class okay. again. Bonjour, class. A bientôt. Merci beaucoup. Au revoir. Okay, merci à vous. Merci à vous. Merci à vous. Okay. That was nice. I like it when uh, I like it when classes call. That's fun. <laughs> you hear them all shout bonjour. <laughs> that was cute. awesome, yeah. Bonjour, bonjour. All right. Well, let me go to a few items that came off Twitter um, that Luca posted. Let's see here. Um, he uh, <laughs> he asked, he's, he just told people that uh, that we're going to be talking about language and subject matter this week. And um, uh, so some people said, uh, can't wait. Um, and some people joked and said, no, you can't make me. Um, and someone said, this was Richard, who said, sounds just like just the thing administrators need to listen to and hear about. Um, yeah, so we need to be better. We, again, we don't want to say that we can't teach language as subject matter. We want to teach language as a special kind of subject matter. Um, and then Luca also asked people, what's your experience with teaching language as subject matter? We had a number of interesting comments. I'll just read a couple real quick. Uh, Richard again says that he and his friend Evelyn both would see students who could conjugate and decline in Latin. Obviously, if he said decline, probably be Latin. Uh, like prose, but couldn't tell you how they felt that day in Latin. Um, and then uh, Mara says, uh, teachers who were surprised that students hadn't attained anything they uh, taught at the beginning of the year. or re I don't know if it's attained or retained. Um, so in other words, after a year-long worth of subject matter, students couldn't do anything with language. Um, I'll do one more. Let's see here. Jacob says, um, says his experience is that uh, teaching language as regular subject matter leads to low-performing students because languages aren't meaningful in isolation. Few people are interested in language for its own sake. Um, that kind of goes back to, too, what we said earlier, that, that little anecdote I had about that guy, nickname, a.k.a. alias Jim at my homeowners meeting last night, who said, you know, he was probably a bad language learner. That's why I didn't learn any Chinese in class. But he said, no, it could just be because you weren't actually learning Chinese in class. You were learning about Chinese in class. So, yeah, so there's a lot of things for people to say about this. Um, and uh, uh, I think everybody has experience one way or another with language as subject matter. So, sorry, I had pulled away from my mic there was I was switching something. So my voice probably went a little off for you out in the audience. All right, we have another caller on the line. Uh, looks like we have Sean on the line. Sean, are you there? Hey, Bill. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Sean, I recognize your voice. You're calling from <laughs> Michigan, aren't you? I am indeed, yes. This is, my, this is my friend and my good colleague, Sean, from Michigan State University. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing excellent. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Yeah. Living a good life here on the show with Angelica and Walter. You know how it is. Absolutely. It's a good crew. Yeah, it is. So what's up? What are you calling about? Oh, I was just calling to um, say that I completely agree with uh, the problems about teaching language as a, as you called it, I think, a regular subject, um, teaching about language, and then people wonder why um, they can't actually use the language or communicate in the language, and um, I think it's a big problem. So I guess my question is, you know, what do we do to solve it? Well, I think that we need to, those of us who have the clout to do it or the because, you know, all politics are local. Um, so, like, our dean is very receptive to talking about these kinds of things, about changing how we might assess and how we might 
uh, do language instruction at Michigan State. So maybe mm -hmm. we want a proficiency outcome as a measure as, a, as opposed to grades. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, or maybe we want to rethink, um, you know, where languages are housed or how they're housed in the university and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I think every institution is going to find its own solution to this. It's probably mm -hmm. some will overlap. Mm -hmm. um, but I, my advocacy right now is to talk about, let's see if we can have an, some, some measurable outcomes, proficiency outcomes, instead of graded courses and just basic seat time. That, that mm -hmm. once you, if you attain X, then you're kind of done with your language requirement. You've shown us you can do something with language. And if you haven't mm -hmm. attained X, well, then you take another class or you do work, some work on your own or whatever it is you do, and then you come back and take your test and see if, mm -hmm. you can, if you're at that level. So I think that's our way to go. It's a different way of thinking. I know it's radical and it probably it raises more questions than it has answers right now, but we have to have something that we can talk about. And I, I think that's what I would do right now. I right. would suggest that talk about that and, kind of outcome. And if you explain that to your students, for example, um, in, the, in the Spanish program and say, you know, we're not going to be teaching, you know, um, metalinguistic grammar, um, do, they, do they sort of buy in? Do they understand that? Or they, do they want still to get, you know, um, conjugation tables? Well, some do and some don't. I mean, there's an affective component to that. I think you're, you're hitting on something there, Sean, that some students feel they need something like a crutch. We have, so what we'd compromise is we've done flipped courses where all our, there are three days a week within our classes, all input and interaction with the language. And then online, they have preparatory work with them in the class, which I shouldn't say this online because I mean, I shouldn't say this in there because they could be listening. That sort of fools them in the sense that it gives them the sense that they're learning something because they self-teach some vocabulary and some grammar before they come to class. Mm -hmm. But we don't always use that and hold them responsible for it. But it gives them the sense that they've got some control over that thing if, it's, if they're curious about it or want to know about it. Mm -hmm. um, so we, have, we leave that to outside of class. And, and we spend our class time, again, with input interaction, can-do statements, um, film, texts, all those kind of things that, you know, all lead to, to hopefully some kind of proficiency outcome. Mm -hmm. And we actually have a proficiency goal for the program um, and we're in, the, we're in the stages of revising and looking at it based on that, you know, uh, information we just got from the grant. I'm sure you're familiar, Sean, with the grant that we had. You're right. That Sue yeah. and Paula um, spearheaded. So we have those data now. We know where we are um, and what we need to do. So that was that was good for us. So we're, we're doing our feedback into the loop now to see what we can do to improve our program. So, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. So... Well, good. I appreciate the call, Sean. Thanks for calling yeah. in. And good. by the way, everybody, Sean is now the new director of Second Language Studies. At, yeah, congratulations. Um, Michigan State Thank University. You. So congratulations on the job. I wish you the very best. Need any help from me? Just let me know. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. Keep spreading the word. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate right. that. Calling in, Sean. Bye, -bye. Bye Sean. Bye-bye now. Bye. That's a first. I don't think we've had any colleagues calling before. From, yeah, that's great. He's from, uh, oh, we've had some so colleagues live props. on the air, though. I'm going to give him a big round of applause. Yay, Sean. Yay. Thanks, for Thanks for your support, Sean. Okay. Um, anything going on in Mixler, Angelica, or an email, Walter, that you want to bring up? Um, yeah, there we... is a shout out actually um, on Mixler that I would like to read from Daryl. He says, great show. Fun news from Minnesota. The Minnesota Council on the Teaching of Languages and Cultures selected while we're on the topic <coughs> as their community book read. We shared the oh, wow. idea with teachers in August. We are discussing the book at our conference next week. Looking forward to it already. Keep up the amazing work. Oh, they're so sweet. I like the Minnesota people. They're real, they were they were they're just so nice up there. They really are. They got some good things going on too. So good for them. Well, thank you for that shout out. Appreciate that. Anything else going on? Any questions? Walter, something from email before we take another phone call? I've got an email question. 
This is from Steve, and he asks, I would like to know more about the interface debate. So you mentioned that in a, I don't know, what, a couple weeks ago, I guess. He says, particularly, what to what degree is each of the three positions, sorry, to what degree each of the positions are accepted in the field of SLA? So he's interested in hearing more about that interface debate. There you have it. There are two interface debates. I'm assuming that he's not talking about the interface between syntax and semantics or syntax and discourse, for example, but instead explicit and implicit learning, right? Right. That's, That's what, what we, assuming. yeah, that was what we had discussed. You talked about yeah. no interface, some interface. Right. There's, a, there's the strong interface, which is explicit learning becomes implicit or explicit knowledge becomes implicit knowledge. There's some kind of practice or whatever. Then there's the uh, no interface position, which is that explicit knowledge cannot become implicit knowledge. And then there's a weak interface, which is somehow explicit knowledge doesn't really become implicit knowledge, but somehow it helps implicit knowledge come along. Now, it depends on your background um, in SLA. Uh, very few people believe the first one, that explicit knowledge becomes implicit knowledge. That's that's. I, very few people in as SLA scholars ascribe to that view. Um, I'm not saying everyone does not. There are a few who do, um, but most people don't. Um, the explicit does not become implicit um, is held by people like me, um, some people in the generative tradition, um, and a number of others. And to a certain extent, um, people who are non-generativists, for example, like those who um, believe it, or who work from a what's called an emergentist or a, a, um, a usage-based approach to uh, what languages and language learning is. Um, the over the vast majority of those people believe that there's no interface that explicit knowledge doesn't become implicit knowledge. Some of those people, however, might buy the third position, which is there's somehow a weak interface, which is explicit may help implicit, but it doesn't become implicit. Um, and I think, so I think that the vast, there's a lot of people in instructed SLA research who believe that middle position, that there's some kind of weak interface. Um, and uh, I have said, the, I'll tell you what my position is. My position is that explicit learning um, is useful in second language acquisition, but not the way most people think. Explicit learning does not get you implicit learning. Explicit knowledge cannot become implicit knowledge because the two are qualitatively different. They are different beasts. But explicit learning is used by language learners as strategies while they're trying to cope with getting meaning. So I will engage explicit processes to try to figure out what someone is saying, but I'm not engaging explicit processes to get grammar. So in other words, if Walter says something to me in Chinese or Angelica says something to me in Turkish, I'm trying to figure out what those words mean. I'm not trying to figure out other endings. Is there case in this language? I'm not doing any of those kind of things. I'm just trying to figure out what the hell the sentence means. And so I may be engaging explicit strategies to that, but that's far different from explicit strategies to get grammar. Grammar happens to you as part of acquisition. It's not something you go about doing explicitly. You can't because language isn't built that way. And whether you're emergentist or generativist or somebody else, it just language doesn't work that way. All right, so that's where we are on that topic. All right, we have Tasha on the line. Tasha, are you there? I'm here. Am I saying your name correct, Natasha? Um, that's close enough. <laughs> what do you mean that's close enough? Well, how would it's you say ta- it? <laughs> it's Tasha. Oh, Tasha. There's an actual so little, actually, at all. There's actually a little vowel in there. So Tasha. <laughs> okay, so Tasha. There we go. 
I'll say, okay, Tasha, where are you calling from? Santa Monica. Yay, Santa Monica. Are you on the boardwalk or are you at home? Uh, pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. I'm at school, but I'm close to the boardwalk, so. Okay, good. One of my favorite movies is uh, Ruthless People with Bette Midler and Danny DeVito, and the, the climactic scene at the end takes place on the, the pier there. So watch that movie if you haven't seen it. You okay. Know, we, um, had, we had this exact conversation the last time. I've called three <laughs> times now for the diva, the diva quiz. Oh and my god! The same That's last why. Week. <laughs> we You've never deja corrected me on your name before. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. See, I tell you, I'm I'm one year away from depends on Gallica. I tell you, I just I can't remember from one to the next what I'm doing. I just can't. Well, thank you, Tasha, for reminding oh, me of that and making funny. me feel old. Now. Okay. Well done, Tasha. I mean, for that alone, I think you should win a book. Yeah, there you go. Did he ask you how you do? How do you pronounce your name last time as well? No, no? I don't think so. <laughs> no, no. It was simply I think I would have remembered that, mispronounced but. last. Okay, time. so it looks I'm here. I'm, I'm looking at my screen. And it says you're calling about the Diva Challenge question. Is that correct? Indeed, I am. Okie dokie. So I'm going to give the question and then you can answer it. So here it goes, everybody. Diva Challenge question of the week: Which pop diva recorded an album in Spanish called Mi Reflejo? even though she did not speak fluent Spanish at the time and maybe still doesn't. Answer to she, Tasha is? Cristina Aguilera. Excellent. There you go. Woo. Ding, 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 ding. All right, yes. Cristina Aguilera is actually, people don't know that she's half uh, Latina. Her father is, I believe, is Ecuadorian? and But her mother's okay. from the United States or something. And yeah. she... Yeah, she's she's familiar with Spanish, but she didn't really speak it. And so she recorded this album. It's like her second or third album she did. And so, um, and uh, what's his name? Perez, um, who was to produce the album, said, yeah, she didn't really speak Spanish, but she did a good job. So, yeah. Yeah, her so, accent is pretty cute. good on it. Yeah, yeah. she's. I like her a lot. Um, anyway, so uh, you have just won a prize that will wing its way out to you, and your name goes in the hat for drawing for a book today. So Hooray. good luck and congratulations. Awesome. Thank Thanks for calling, Tasha. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Christina, it's interesting. A lot of people think that just because you're Latino, you, I mean, Jennifer Lopez sings in two languages. Mark Anthony sings in two languages. Obviously, Enrique Iglesias does. Ricky Martin does. But Christina Aguilera doesn't. Um, she, is, she is not a fluent speaker of Spanish from what we understand. Okie dokies. Um, any more Mixler or email questions that we want to um, deal with while Angelica is laughing her butt off in the studio here? She's laughing so hard she can barely contain herself. It must be some question that came through. Come on, share. Share no. with me. No, Angelica. Share with me. Don't share. Don't share. We have a caller. Yay. Okay. Let's go ahead and take our caller. Let's skip the... Let's, let's we'll just say Angelica that. injured herself. We'll just say that. That's all. She injured herself. Yes. Okay. All right. So we have a call on the line. Josh, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Josh, where are you calling from? Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore, Maryland. Good morning, Baltimore. I love Hairspray. Yeah, That's yeah. a good movie. Great musical. Hey, Josh, what are you calling about? What's up? Uh, so I had a, a couple um, extra... Um, effects to add to the list i think um earlier in the episode you mentioned three um effects of teaching uh language as a subject matter right five actually i mentioned five josh i five. mentioned five i only reposted that three when i was when Sorry. i was calling i missed two yeah okay that's okay uh, so, so <laughs> i've got a couple that i thought of um 
And I think the most obvious one that came to my mind was that one effect is teaching it like subject matter just makes it really boring. Um, there's there's some that really enjoy the linguistic parts of it. I think a lot of us as teachers do, because that's kind of just who we are maybe. Um, but overall, for, for the average crowd and especially for students, it just it doesn't make it very interesting. And if you're trying to align uh, for student interest uh, to get engagement out of them, you really can't do that if you're worried about a prescribed vocab list uh, right. or explicit right. grammar points. But if you're right. really doing a genuine CI-based classroom, there's so many interesting things you can do. You can really get the students into it, and that's just so important. Um, yep, 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 I agree. Yep, and with that actually came a little bit in the conversation with Darren when he called in. But, yeah, you, you actually phrased it very nicely. So good. What's your second consequence? Uh, the second was about um, differentiation in the classroom is such a, uh, you know, hot thing uh, in, in the world of education. When you have an observation, for instance, I just did, they want to know afterwards, uh, how is it that you differentiated in your classroom? How did you meet all the students where they are as individuals? And um, so my answer when I had my conference was that, you know, because I choose to teach, um, you know, in this uh, CI way, I'm naturally meeting all the students where they are. If if so and so acquired uh, these particular parts of the language, um, and I have no idea what they might be, but this person may have acquired this little bit out of the story that we told today, uh, and this other student may have been at a different stage in his um, acquisition, and and maybe they're acquiring something different. And so by just tossing out this wide net of CI and and giving them all the input, I'm allowing them to just take what they will, uh, you know, in, in their minds. Whereas the subject matter style teaching really is, is kind of just targeted towards those classically high achieving students that might be more inclined to memorization and usual schoolwork and they're able to pass tests, but it excludes right. those others and making them feel like they right. can't do it. Right. And I think that the, the code behind that question from your observer is not how did you meet student needs, but what were you doing to help students prepare for a test and to show success in the course? And that's really what's behind that, as opposed to how are you? How can you show me that students are acquiring language? Which is a different question, right? And that's not the one they're asking. So, yeah, you're right. I like that. That's mm-hmm. good. Good for you, Josh. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, add those to my list. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, are you going to say something? Oh, uh, well, I had uh, one last one that kind of came out of that. Okay, make one last one because then I got to wrap up with you because we got to do our book drawing here in a second. So go ahead, yeah, give it to so us. So just because of that, um, you know, letting them, uh, you know, take what they will and not excluding those who are more inclined to standard schoolwork, it it brings about the most important effect of all, which is just that the students are happier in in our classes. The students are just they feel successful and they feel this confidence that they're not expected. To give forced output and 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 have this memorized list of uh, grammatical rules, they're they're just able to come into the right. class and enjoy it. And I had a student come in the other day, and, and he was so happy. He said, "Finally, a stress-free class today. I had all these tests. I had this presentation in my other class. I'm I'm so excited to just chill out and 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 listen to German for a while." So and that was enjoy really it. And, and, and I know I'm learning something. And you know what about that too, Josh? The flip side of that is when the students are happy, who else is happy? Oh, the teacher, for sure. 
the teacher, the teacher, as long as the teachers and students are happy with each other and enjoying themselves, that's really an important part of education. Um, we don't want to neglect mm-hmm. everything else, but that's, we want to keep teachers happy and teachers engaged with the profession. So, well, thanks, Josh. I got to let you go because we got to do our drawing now. So your name is going in the hat for the book too. So thanks for calling in and right, keep up the good work. Keep up the good work teaching German. Thank you. Thank right. you. Bye, Josh. Bye, Josh. Thanks for calling, Josh. Bye-bye. Cheers. Oh, I should have made Angelica speak to him in German. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Uh, let's do our drawing. You guys have a hat. There. I see you're pulling names out of something. Yes. Yeah, so we have a mug. Do we do a mug Angelica drawing. has chosen. Angelica has chosen. Who's the winner of a book? And the winner today is Meg from Illinois. Hey, Yay, Meg in her, her Meg. French class from Illinois. Yes. Great, Meg. Congratulations. We're going to I'll send you a signed copy of my book tomorrow in the mail. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. And if you're going to act, I'll see you there. Anything else we need to tell people while we have them here listening to us, kids? Anything else? Did we call our our talk? We got some good topics and good stuff in today about languages. Yeah. Subject matter, I think that was important. Uh, Josh raised some really good uh, points at the end. Darren raised some good ones. We had some good Good call in today. I really yeah, like, I like our audience. Yep, I agreed. I do. Can I just, I, I just want to follow up on something that Josh was just talking about. We actually got an email from Dave, and he uh, he said that um, we talked about this uh, issue of students with special needs, and, and, and Josh kind of brought that up. He said he actually uh, just completed his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation at Rutgers in 2015, entitled sorry, titled, it says titled, not entitled, <laughs> so, uh, World Language Teacher Preparation and Special Education, a Case Study. So he said we can put that out there, it has some uh, good citations, so if people are interested in, in taking a look at that, that they might be able to find out some more information about. And who is that again, Walter? His name is Dave. Dave, okay. Thank you, Dave, for that. And we'll have we'll have Ryan put that up on the website as a source for people to... To consult. Yeah, good for good. Well, good for Dave. So we'll have to have Dave call in some time and talk a little bit about that. Maybe when we get to that episode on teacher education, you can talk about that. Okay, well, I got to wrap up now because our time is running out. So let me do my acknowledgments. I'm so glad we had this time together. Okay, we're going to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trago, our media producer, Luca Giappone, the talented and trusted muscle man. Oh, loves me, my Dustin DeFelice. He's a great guy. Uh, and we want to thank our production managers and assistants, the able-bodied duo, Chad and Ryan, Chad Bosley and Ryan Stuck. We thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our dean, Christopher Long, for his support in what we do. And as a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program not, do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, as usual, we thank all of our listeners out there, our loyal fans. We love you so much. All right. Next week, we'll be back. And the topic will be uh, related to Chapter 3, which is about the nature of acquisition. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll get continue with our countdown to act for. So until then, goodbye, everybody. And happy language acquisition to all of you. Bis Say next Donnerstag. Wir freuen uns. I agree wholeheartedly with whatever it is she just said. I like it. Goodbye, everybody. We can do sound of music. So long. Farewell. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye. It's like, wait, that was Auf Wiedersehen. Adieu to you and you and you and you and you. Really? I don't know. No, it's not.
Yes, it's a fierce energy. Wow. Gotta watch oh, well. Again, apparently. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>